Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to uh, Parshat Bamidbar of the Sefer Bamidbar, in case anybody was trying to keep up. So, um, you know, this is, Avi, this is the Parsha where we first talk about really the massive number of, of people within the camp. And what's interesting to me is up until now, when we've mentioned names, when the Torah has names, it's, it's really in the context of either that was the only name to discuss, or it was a, a prominent individual. Now, we have people being named as leaders of the different tribes, and really, this is not, this is someone picking a specific name. This is, this is Hashem decreeing a specific name out of over 603,000 Israelites. The sheer number of that, in all of these different numbers, is just fascinating to me. I'll take it one step further, Akiva, to add to your question that in just a few weeks, and I don't mean, yes, it'll be a few weeks for us, but it'll even be a few weeks for them, they're all going to die in a fire in a place called Tavera, killed by Hashem for not uh, following what Hashem wants. And I'm actually going to suggest that that's part of the answer to your question. Because while these people don't seem to be people of note, they are the leaders of each Shevet. And the idea is, when you are a leader, right, people look up to you. People hold you in high regard. And you're responsible. The crown weighs heavy on the head of the ruler. But you're responsible. These people were responsible for what happened to B'nai Israel, And that's why when things go wrong, they're the ones that are killed. And we need to know who they were because we need to know who was responsible. And I think that is true of our leaders, both in the Jewish community and in the world at large today. We can't simply look around and say, Eh, things happen, right? But rather, there are leaders who say they want to be responsible, who take on positions of leadership, and while they cannot control everything, when they don't try to manage things, when they don't do their jobs, and terrible things happen, 
then they need to be held to account. And so, to me, that's part of what we get from the beginning of this Parsha and all of these names that do seem to come out of the woodwork, even if it's for a very short period of time. So, you know, we mentioned about needing to know who's responsible rather than um, saying accepting things happen. And while, while I agree with that, I have to slightly disagree because... I have been, as I'm sure you have, as many of us have, in situations where those who are theoretically in charge, globally, rather than spending time figuring out how to fix the issue, spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out who's to blame, which is akin to who's responsible in that setting. And I recall on several of those occasions thinking to myself, we don't have time for this. We need to figure out how to, how to come up with a solution. Whatever it is, yes, we need to figure out where the fallback is, where the, the misstep occurred for sure to prevent it from happening again. But in the moment, rather than worry about who was to blame, we needed to come up with an answer. So I will respond and say, I think the answer is yes and yes, right? Um, and all of it depends on specifics. So let's talk about some specifics. In a case where B'nai Israel goes off and begins to worship idols or begins to do things that are against what Hashem has told them to do, and those leaders do not speak up, and those leaders do not try to lead people back onto the path that is correct, the first thing that has to happen is the people need to be led back by someone. But the second thing is that the person who was the leader and didn't speak up and didn't try to lead those people back needs to be replaced. And I will suggest that in today's day and age, right, Again, whether you're talking about in the Jewish community or in the world of politics or the global accountability, we can say over and over again, well, this person's just too big to be held accountable for their actions. But at the same time, what does that say to the next person who comes along? Well, if he could get away with it, I can too. And so if we never hold people to account, yes, I agree. The first thing that needs to happen is that people need to be returned to the right path. What was broken needs to be fixed to whatever extent possible. But if we don't hold people to account, then they will not learn. And the next person, and even if they don't learn, the next person who comes along will think that it is acceptable to do the same thing. Well said. So I'm going to um, break tradition a little bit, and uh, I think this is a great springboard for a question that I'd like to propose, which is, does the Torah do this? Does the Torah begin with a proper triaging of how do we fix this, and then who's to blame, or... Does it 
take care of the who's to blame factor by, in many cases, ridding them of this world, and then figure out how to fix the problem. And the truth is, is that it may be a situation where it's a question of what's going on. But I think it's probably worth looking at in future Parshiot. And, and I would argue, and in past Parshiot. Because I think there are times where you're right. There are times where the consequence happens, and then that is part of the reparation and there are times where the correction occurs and then the consequence. So I'll name a few names going forward, right? The story of Korach is a famous one, where when we get there, we'll see Korach rebels, and hopefully when we get there, we'll talk more about how and if, and is it really, but when Korach rebels, he is put in his place and a very clear um, consequence and a clear message is sent that if you're going to challenge the leaders and say that, you know, they were not chosen by Hashem, no, 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 sir. They were clearly chosen by Hashem because only through Hashem could the miracles that occur happen. But on the other hand, there's definitely a consequence for Korah. And it happens after the lesson is learned, after the people are set back on their path. But I could also look at the story of Pinchas, where there are two people who are engaged in inappropriate cohabitational activity in front of the Ohamoid, and Pinchas comes, sorry, spoiler alert, and he skewers them. And there the consequence happens before the lesson. So it may depend on the individual story. Although one could argue also Pinchas never served a consequence for murdering people. Whether or not it was justified. Well, when we get there, we'll have to see if he was supposed to. And the judge said there were extenuating circumstances. So Akiva, there's a lot of counting here. We count each shevet, we count how they camped, we count them in all sorts of ways. We do a total. Talk to us about this idea of counting and why it may be important, especially right here and right now. So what struck me was we went through a an accounting of each particular tribe, exactly how many there were, to the individual. And then when they talked about how they camped within the community as a whole, they said again the numbers for each tribe. And... I think what's interesting about that, because one could say, why 
repeat? Why does the Torah repeat itself? Surely the number doesn't need to be said again. I, I know that when I'm looking through it, I mean, yes, I don't remember the number from one page to the next, but that's not an accountant. Um, and I guess maybe the deeper meaning is, you know, we're taught about how important every single individual is and how much, whereas you mentioned previously about how different parts of the body were given valuation. You know, we talked also about, you mentioned how you specifically used the term body. You didn't mention the individual, the entirety of the person. And I think that goes to show us that even though each individual may have a, an accounting, they're a person, at the same time, the opportunities that they show and the value that ultimately can come from them is probably innumerable. And so I think in, the, in, in this almost antithetical way, we have this idea of counting and taking a census and you and I were talking and you mentioned about how the, in the wilderness, the, the, the Israelites thrived. They grew in number when one would have expected them to decrease in number. And you can look and you can look at those numbers and how they're growing and how they are succeeding and thriving. And it really is a case in point how even in the most adverse of circumstances, an individual's value and potential is really impossible to numerically value. So Avi, when they're talking about the different countings, they specifically says, uh, don't count the Levites. And then, of course, we go right in and count the Levites. Tell us about this. So I would suggest that the reason it says don't count the Levites is because the general population was counting males between the ages of 20 and 60 those who were able to fight to know how large one's army could possibly be. Levium, however, being dedicated to God, are counted from 30 days up until 50 years. 30 days being when we consider a child to be, or at least in the times of the Torah, when a child was viable, uh, 30 days after birth, uh, and that's why we have a pigeon haben at 30 days after birth. Until 50 years of age, at which point a Kohen was expected to retire. Uh, Kohenim and Levim would retire at 50 years of age because at that point it was felt that they had put in their service and now they were prepared to do other things. And the, the Mishnah and the Gemara talk about other things that Kohanim and Levim would do. Some of them would go out and serve in communities, and some of them would teach other younger Levim and Kohanim. So it wasn't that they were put out to pasture, but rather that they were not in the physical service, right? 
where you were perhaps holding down and wrestling large animals uh, and things like that. Avi, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back a little bit here because what I heard was if you were in the regular commoners, um, you would be reasonably expected to participate in a militia until the age of 60. But at the age of 50, if you were a Levite, you may not be able to handle the pressures of shechting and carrying an animal and... The physical exertions. That's my, my take on it, although I could certainly be wrong. We know that the, the ages are given to us by the Torah. The reasoning, I have to take full blame for, right? So the fact that it is inconsistent could be my limited understanding. I suppose, to give you more credit than apparently you're willing to give yourself, psychiatrist, what can I say? Um, I, I wonder perhaps if, you know, obviously, of course, the Hashem, the Torah, already knows whether or not we will need who for what and when and at what age. So perhaps maybe that's the difference in the, in the numbering. Maybe we knew that we wouldn't need 60-year-olds to be defending, whereas we would more reasonably need a 50-year-old to be bringing in a korban. Perhaps. Alternatively, I might add that sometimes when you're looking at an army and an attacking army, one of the things that can strike great fear into an a place that is being attacked is significant numbers. And so you want to build those numbers in whatever way you can to attack. And so it was to the army's benefit to have as many able-bodied people as possible. Whereas when you're talking about individuals who need to handle and work with large animals, that might be a different story. The other thing that I think is important to mention about Levium is that they were not the first choice for working in the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan. They were really there taking the place of the Bechorim, the firstborn. It was really the firstborn of each family that was supposed to work in the Beit HaMikdash, but they lost this earlier and therefore it became the Levim who end up being able to work in the Beit HaMikdash. And so this reminds me a little bit about the story of Yaakov and Esav, where we talk about, well, somebody was the firstborn, how do you take away their birthright? And the answer is, here you had firstborns who had a birthright to work in the Mishkan. And yet the Levium get to take it away. They get to exchange for it. right? And in fact, as I mentioned before with Pidjon Haben, when you have a, an oldest male child and they are supposed to work in the Beit HaMikdash, the way we make that exchange is 
with a financial exchange between the family and the Kohen. And so here we have sort of a touch point among many different components within the Torah. We have the component of going back and perhaps helping us understand better how Yaakov was able to take the birthright from Esav. There was an exchange. How it was that the Leviim ended up taking over for the Bechorim, for the eldest, through an exchange. And why they may be a little bit different and why it's from 30 days because now that they are viable at 30 days, they are Kodesh, they are holy, and therefore cannot be used for any other purpose. So the family of Kahat had the most dangerous job. It was their responsibility to carry the holiest items, one small mistake, and they could be dead. I'd like to propose that the reason that Hashem tells B'nai Israel not to separate them is because it might be natural to emotionally distance themselves from Kahat because they have such a dangerous job. Can you tell us a little bit about why, when, how people emotionally separate themselves? And do we do this? How can we stop ourselves from doing this? Should we stop ourselves from doing this? Um, and how that might play into the family of Kahat. I think this best relates to when someone is diagnosed with a terminal illness. And oftentimes what can happen is the family members and, and loved ones will almost begin to mourn the passing of the individual before they even pass, which one can imagine is all sorts of kind of... Uh, Difficult, devastating. Yeah, yeah. And, and really can, can push the person with the terminal illness to, in fact head that way faster. Uh, we, you know, for whatever medical background scientific explanations we can or can't come up with, the truth is, is that there is an emotional component to health and there are hormone changes and other chemical changes that occur in the body when we are feeling positive versus when we are not feeling positive. And there are stories upon stories of this one was given this amount of time to live and they found out that they were going to have a great grandchild or what have you and they ended up making it to the birth of the great grandchild and so on and so forth. And, and so we know that there's a huge component of emotional connection and therefore also there's a huge component of the devastation that can occur with emotional distancing. And I think that's exactly what the what the Torah is seeking to avoid is here we have a group of people that one, as you said, might say, well, doesn't make any sense to get connected because they're just going to likely die anyway. And in fact, we're hearing that the opposite is true. 
And when we think about how we do as humans, we see also that the opposite is true. We need that love. We need that connection. We need that emotional support. We hear again about those who, who knew that they had to survive a situation because they had someone to come back to, did. And whether it's, whether it's fate, whether it's luck, whether it's Hashem, whether it's all of the above, which for most of us believe that, right, that falls under the Hashem category. But whatever we want to call it, there's value, there's meaning to those knowing that you have a reason to do something and a reason to succeed and a person to come back to. And so I think that's really what the message is. So one of the things that is notable about this week's Parsha, other than the numerical components, is the use of the word Tachash, which really is not easily translated. Uh, Safaria, which, thank you, Safaria, uh, translates it as dolphin, which led to all sorts of interesting discussions off-site between Avi and myself. But I guess what the question that I'm thinking of is, what is something in your life that perhaps you couldn't describe to anyone else, but if they saw it, they knew what you were talking about, and they knew the importance of it to you? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. If and when my children ever listen to this, they should not feel bad. I don't remember any of their birthdays.